You're listening to the Functional Nerds Podcast with your hosts, Patrick Hester and Tracy Townsend. Welcome back, friends. Please make sure your pot seat and tray table are in their upright and locked position. The airlock is sealed and docking clamps have been released for an on-time departure to the Functional Nerdverse. Well... We have a guest who is definitely down with the new intro theme. I mean, I keep calling it new intro theme, but it's like almost two years old now, so there's nothing new about this anymore. But we got some we got some headbanging going on there, Toby. I'm down with it, but uh, I think I'm just uh, you know that's it's you raise the bar so high that uh, your guests or your listeners will have nothing to do but be disappointed from here on out. That's as cool <laughs> as this episode's going to be right there. It's true. The yeah, mark. like we're just this is it. My, mark your calendars for for 2022. It was all downhill after this point when we had no, uh, Tobias Buckel on. Yeah, just after this. <laughs> no, cooler, after this episode. Yeah, we need to be clear. Yeah, the this isn't episode, right. Yes, this is the zenith, as it were. Yes, we have reached the height. <laughs> so we're with Tobias Buckel today, um, and of course we've got. Um, so many things from you. Oh my God. Like your whole backlist is ridiculous. Most recently, Shagas and Traffic and other stories, which apparently is judging from the lineup on LeVar Burton Reads must be his favorite damn book because he's just <laughs> loving you. Um, so congratulations on that. That must be quite a Thank feeling. <laughs> it's really cool. He's he's read two of the short stories from that collection. So that's really that's really pretty awesome. And he even mentioned the collection's name on his podcast. So, you know, win. Yeah. Yeah. Double win. <laughs> As right a little there. kid who, uh, you know, I, I grew up on a boat and uh, it's hard to get cable on a boat. So one of the things that we got a lot of, which was was broadcast PBS on this yeah. little black and white uh, mm-hmm. TV I ran off of the boat's battery system, 12 volt battery system. And, you know, reading Rainbow was just even when I got you know way out, aged way out of the demographic. I still watched it because it was literally the only thing on at times. But I loved it, and I loved <laughs> Lavar. And um, my relatives up in the states used to VCR tape uh, Next Generation and mail it to us, and we would watch it on the boat. And and well, Babylon Five, and Babylon Five, Babylon Five. Okay. No, I remember Babylon Five to me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah they did. They did. Yeah. Yeah. So, so as far as you go for your fandom, Tracy, mm-hmm. imagine like reaching out to family in the States and going, Hey, can you record next generation Babylon five? And like, send me the video cassettes. This is what, this was Toby's childhood. <laughs> what I think there's like, there's a whole lot of world building. We might need to back up and do here for <laughs> listeners who, who are less familiar with you and your origin story, which is quite an origin story. So when you say I grew up on a boat, I think you probably <laughs> need to contextualize that for people who are thinking that that might mean that you and your family had like a sloop that you took out on the summers or something. So let's, 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 Paint a picture. Sure. So, uh, you know, uh, it starts with my grandfather who grew up in London and was sort of like an electrical engineer, inventor, sort of, uh, you know, technical savant like that. And he got bored of sailing up and down the Thames and decided to buy a hundred foot odd long uh, yacht and bundle his whole family aboard that and sail the Mediterranean in the world and see what the world's oceans had to offer him. And my mom was born in London, but other relatives were born in Malta and around, you know, parts of the Mediterranean. And uh, eventually the family ended up in the Caribbean. And my mom met my dad, who comes from a a line of Caribbean fishermen, sailors, people who live uh, around the islands. And uh, 
so I grew up on a boat in uh, in uh, Grenada, um, you know, and uh, most of my family lives, works aboard boats for a good chunk of their lives or still works with boats on, up and down the East Coast. So I grew up on a boat. It's weird. It's kind of like living in an RV, but at sea. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, very kind of similar to that experience uh, off the grid, you know, hippies, but we weren't hippies. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. Yeah, it was a very interesting life. Uh, I don't think that uh, it doesn't seem that unusual to me, but it's something that gets everyone's attention when it comes out. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Well, we, we our last guest who um, we will have preceded you last week, um, her her book and her story. We're spending a lot of time talking about growing up in contact with uh, people who, who live in mansions and, you know, travel the world and have wealth and glamorous parties and things of that nature. And that led to this like whole conversation about where you come from constructing this whole idea of what everything else is like. And I got to think that growing up on a boat where there, there aren't even roads per se, you're just, there's, there's this sense of this vast space that can be traveled or not, you know, if, if you're in a position where it's time to, to dock for a time, that's got to change that whole sense of like when you're developing stories, what feels possible? Because like Absolutely. the boundaries and the borders are totally different. You say boundaries and borders. Yeah, I, I have a very, you know, instinctually different view of the world. I was just having a conversation with someone who was uh, trying to set up plans to immigrate somewhere. And, you know, uh, for them, it's this uh, very large wrenching process that they're doing very formally and, and in stages and steps. And they were asking me something. And I said, I don't know. My experience was you just always sailed there and you showed up. <laughs> like, you know, I'm here now. Like, what are you going to do? Yeah. You know, like the idea of, of the hard mutability of borders and and what you should be doing and how things work, you know, yeah. is, is very different because the, on a boat, even though you still had to legally, you know, uh, take your passports and go to the immigration office and check in, there are no border checkpoints. There's no idea of a border. It's just sort of like there's this bureaucracy that's attached to this invisible idea, right? Um, I've never, you know, I've never experienced that, that concept uh, as hard. Uh, so yeah, and then the sense of possibilities, you know, um, I've just always been around uh, people who live really weird lives or weird by most other people's definition. It was all normal to me. I didn't hang around people who had normal jobs until I was in my teens, right? Most of the people, most of my neighbors were all people living on boats, piecing together a living through odd jobs or or weird jobs or unexpected jobs, or they lived seasonally. A lot of my friends came into my life seasonally. They would be like, oh, we spent some time in South Africa. And before that, we were in the South Pacific. And before that, we were up and down the West Coast. Before that, we spent some time in Alaska. And we just keep going around the world every year, right? And so like these two months, we spend in Grenada, you know? And so there I'd have these friends that would be like, oh, it's October, you know? Manuel is here. You know, great. There's his ship, right? His yeah. parents have just pulled in and you go over there in the dinghy and you're like, dude, it's good to see you. It's been 10 months, you know, and you just kind of pick up where you left off. Um, and there were just a lot of these people in my life who just lived like that. You know, um, one really good set of friends spent six months working at a jewelry store and then the other six months sailing up and down the Caribbean. They just get enough money together 
and then they would go off on their next adventure. And so there were these these lives that were built out of these different structures and these different mm-hmm. frames um, that I always was around growing up. And so that, you know, to me, you know, when I went to college and everyone sort of, you know, had these ideas where they were like, yes, I'm going to graduate and then become an accountant. And then after five years of doing that, I'm going to, you know, do this. And then I will, you know, have a house and a car and a commute and the structure because that's what you do. You know, but then you talk to them late at night, one night after a few too many beers, and they're like, but I want to sing. You know? and you're like, Go <laughs> sing, man. Go sing. Yeah. Um, and they're like, but you can't do that. And you're just like, who says? Like, do accounting for six months and then go sing for six months. <laughs> no one, yeah. there's no rule that says you have to have a, a job year round. It does, it's not a thing. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, it's funny, Tracy, because. When, when I, when I moved from California, when I was leaving California and I was going to Tennessee for a job, the job was to be on the road. Mm-hmm. I was going to be on the road all the time. Uh, my uncle is a, he's always loved RVs. He's always had an RV of some kind. He, I remember when I was a kid, he bought a Greyhound bus, mm-hmm. a used Greyhound bus, and he tore it apart and built it into an RV like built it into a, a, an RV for himself. And he had that for several years and then he sold it. And then he bought a, a, a regular, you know, store-bought yeah, RV, I guess you'd call it. Yeah. And, and then he sold that and he had another one. So he's always had RVs. So when I'm, I'm, I sat down with him and I said, Hey, I'm moving to Tennessee and I want to get rid of my car. Cause I had, I had a, I had like a, this was 1999 and I had an 86 Ford Tempo. Might be time. Yeah. And I was like, I was like, I'm going to have to be on the road. So I'm going to need a decent car. So I want to go get a car. Would you go with me? And he tried, he tried three times. Then he gave up um, to talk me into this. He wanted me to get an RV. Mm-hmm. And his thought was, and it's similar to what Toby's talking about with the the migration and just kind of, you know, moving seasonally with stuff. My uncle's idea was, he's like, if I were you and I was your age and I didn't have a family and I didn't have, didn't have anything tethering me. I would get myself an RV and I would just, I would just take that everywhere. And then I wouldn't have to get hotel rooms. I could just drive anywhere I want to be and always have my home with me and always have my stuff. And, and like, that was his dream at the mm-hmm. time, but it wasn't mine. <laughs> so yeah. I, he tried, like, like I said, three times, he tried to talk me into that. And by the third time, I, he realized I wasn't going to go for it. Because uh, number one, like I'm not a... of Christ here, like three times. <laughs> and then the cock crowed. And he was like, no, he will buy a Toyota Tercel. Ah. <laughs> I'm not, I'm not a, a car person. Like, I don't, I don't know how the engine works and I don't know how mm-hmm. to fix things. And yeah. the RV life, you have to know. Now, you could learn, but you have to know how things work and why they work and how to fix them because things do break down. I'm assuming it's the same on a boat. You have to know. Same on the boat. Yeah, you have to know how to fix things. And, and when something ain't working, there you can't just you can't just pull into the Walmart and have, you know, the, the guys at the Walmart fix it for you. Yeah. Or at least you have to be brave enough to sort of take a stab at things. But there is there is also an infrastructure of uh, places that fix things all around marinas. So mm-hmm. there, you know, there was a lot of that. Unfortunately, the reason we lived on boats is because is we couldn't afford house pricing on land. Sure. So that that was one of the strong, uh, you know, pushes uh, to get us on boats. 
And um, also, though, it's one of the things you said that I really loved about living on a boat. The thing I miss the most is taking your home with you. I yeah. used to love the fact that like when it was, a, well, right now I'm on spring break and it was really great when it was Thanksgiving break or winter break where we would go and, and uh, go heavy grocery shopping and plan out two weeks of food and load it onto the boat and then just take off and go anchor off a few different beaches over a couple weeks and, and just enjoy, right. You know, the life that people spend tens of thousands of dollars to try and take a vacation of, but for sure. us, it was just sort of like, well, let's double up the grocery bill and add some extra <laughs> diesel to the engine and go like uh, anchor off Maho Bay, which was one of our favorites and <laughs> spend three or four days just on that beautiful beach snorkeling. And then when we get bored of it, We'll pull up the anchor and uh, we'll go visit some family on Virgin Gorda and uh, go visit the baths, which are, I think, one of the most beautiful places in the world that I've ever seen um, and explore all that. And then when we're done, we'll anchor off this other place and they have like a floating restaurant. So we'll cap off our two weeks of vacation with a meal on a floating boat where uh, we have a nice meal. And then we'll sail back to the harbor where we have our, uh, you know, mooring and uh, go back to dreary old regular work and school life. Sometimes yeah. we just take off for the weekend too, you know? Sure. And just But all your stuff was there. Like all my favorite yeah. books, all my, you know, my bed, everything that was my, you know, my home, it was just there, but in a much cooler place. Yep. So I, I feel like I'm taking this in a slightly dark direction, but I can't help because I'm, I'm sorry. <laughs> I can't help but think as I'm listening to all this and thinking back to the idea of like the structures that surround us that we sort of assume we have to f- frame our lives within um, and the relatively small number of us that choose to make the kind of um, trade-offs and sacrifices that allow you to live outside of those structures or with those structures is just sort of like an ancillary, like you were describing, Toby. I'm thinking a lot about where we are now in the world with so many different manifestations of refugee crises, because there's so many ways in which the larger structure that people live within crumbles. And it often crumbles in a way that they have made no contribution towards themselves. It's it's the larger systemic failure that comes of war or famine um, or an ecological disaster or any combination of these things. And the way that people are not prepared to exist without that structure and that the structure itself, as they try to move their life from one place to another, becomes this sort of barrier they find themselves bouncing off against. Um, and that it's that the structure is meant to contain things from both directions. You know, it gives a kind of rigidity and stability to the lives of people who are already inside of it. But it also creates this sort of, you know, force field outside of it that makes it very difficult for you if you your life has lost that structure and you need a return to that stability and a return to that that safety. It makes it very difficult to re-enter that system somewhere else. Um, and I don't, this isn't so much a question as it is just sort of an observation. Um, I well, can't help it, but it, think about that. It makes me, it, you know, all of those things are really true. Um, we've, you know, we've, for thousands of years, we've built a number of structures around staying put, uh, as opposed to the more cyclical lives, you know, we originally used to li- live as hunter gatherers and prior to the agricultural revolution. And there are very few people who live cyclically anymore. So, you know, there's still bands of people within, you know, our agriculturally industrial, you know, agro-industrial 
structure eight to five society who, who will live cyclically. Um, a lot of people who, once they become retired, uh, live cyclically snowbirds, you know, it's used as a pejorative, but I think that's some of that same instinct, you know, mm-hmm. travel to whether the weather is nice, you know, have multiple communities and contexts that you exist within. Um, in the terms of refugees, uh, two things pop to me. Uh, one is, um, Malka older, uh, online yeah. talks a lot about this, um, and has some really amazing insight into that. Um, and has done a lot of uh, academic research on how, um, refugees are treated and some of the conceptual frameworks around, um, refugee quote unquote crises. Um, and another thing that occurs to me was, um, a friend of mine, Paolo Bacigalupi did a tour mm-hmm. of the, um, after, uh, the Fukushima, was uh, touring some of the refugee areas uh, for the people who left Fukushima and talking about how the Japanese uh, had set up um, camps and what was important for them to set up. And I've been thinking a lot, and I wrote a story um, which I think was in Shoggoths in Traffic. I think it made it in. I, there's there's the original table of contents, and then there's what yeah, we, and there's what we what did. Happened. A couple of stories were, were in the what-if area, and I forget what, what made it in and what didn't. But one of the stories is set in a refugee camp because I was trying to work out some ideas around um, what are what it should look like because I hate the temporary nature. What you're saying is we we try to keep people out, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so we put them in camps, you know, with tents. Um, and I, you know, the recent Ukrainian crisis is upsetting to watch because it's a, you know, again, it's refugees and people being through no fault of their own having to become stateless and homeless um, and facing those challenges. But one of the things that's really different about this crisis is that all the Europeans are inviting them into their homes. They're not staying them in tents. Um, And they're being very open and welcoming because they perceive the Ukrainians as us and not other. Um, So whereas Syrians, you know, 1 million Syrians was a crisis that, that they had to be put behind gated, tented uh, refugee camps yeah. Um, Ukrainians are being housed in everybody's spare bedrooms and people yeah. are giving hotel rooms. So the disparity in that is actually, you know, very uh, upsetting to watch on that axis. Although I'm very grateful that Ukrainians are being welcomed in and taken care of because yeah. that's what I want to yeah. see for all refugees. Sure. Yeah. Um, not just Ukrainians. Um, and it goes to show us how much of a construct it is. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, those refugees are us. Those refugees are other. Those refugees, uh, you know, we're going to put in tents. These refugees, we're going to serve tea and coffee inside of our, our homes. Um, and I've often wondered how we can do refugee better, right? Um, my thought has been, even if we don't have the spare bedrooms, the idea of the refugee crisis being temporary is always something that's that's given uh, as an excuse to put people in tents. And the truth is, I think, knowing that refugee crisis is often when it's a, because of a structural issue can last 10, 20, 30 years. Uh, my preference would be to create sort of like uh, Hong Kong-like cities where you build actual infrastructure um, and create kind of like a, you know, a, like a free opportunity zone um, mm-hmm. so that, you know, uh, we can say like, here, here's a place on the border that's protected and safe but this is going to be kind of like an exclave um, yeah. and you will live in a comfortable place um, and there will be housing. And if everyone, you know, if everything sorts itself out and all these people leave, we have infrastructure that we can use for cheap housing for another refugee crisis or for other people who need housing. You know, mm-hmm. it's just to spend all of this money to then bulldoze these camps 
in 10 yeah. years, 15 years, um, and to keep people living. People have grown up in tents. They're 20-year-olds going to college, you know, mm-hmm. in institutions and places uh, who have spent their whole lives living in these under, under-structured, under-resourced, under-planned places, right? You know, it's, at mm-hmm. least we could maybe Burning Man it a little bit more, um, <laughs> you know, and kind of come up with some more. I know I know some people who work for NGOs are probably listening and hating me because they're like, actually, probably they do a lot of that. But I'm just sort of, the, the like you said, the structure, it's really quickly how it showed what a fake frame it was, yeah. you know, because we frame these refugees as not worth investing in um, and these refugees as worth investing in. And that that troubles me because it's just you know, A, from a moral side, and then B, from just a human capital standpoint, we're just wasting so much opportunity. Yeah. And I guess your your answer here kind of anticipates something that I, I jotted down here in my notes. And your your bio talks about you being a, um, a, a fantasist and a, and a, a science fiction writer, uh, but it also references you being a futurist. And I think we see that a lot uh, for some writers kind of positioning themselves as a futurist. And I think there are a lot of people who when they encounter that term, ask themselves, what does that mean? Like if I, if I were to call up Toby Buckell and say, um, okay, futurist, I want you to talk to me and the folks at my company. What kind of thinking do you find yourself through the lens of fiction and through the lens of, of speculative thinking that you, you're equipped to bring to like the realities of our world? What is it like? So I say to you, come, come offer me your advice as a futurist and what kind of stuff might you end up talking to people about? So one of the things is just what we were just talking about, which is to get people to step outside their frames, right? If you're someone who thinks that like, oh, I'm an engineer, I take a bunch of these degrees, I get the piece of paper, I go in, I have a nine to five job, I get the house, I have the commute, which is approximately 45 minutes there and 45 minutes back, and I I live inside of the structure, that's going to affect everything on down the line in terms of what you think is possible, Right. And so what I'm there to do is to try to get them to creatively think outside. Oh, God, I hate to say outside the box, but outside their frame. I want them to reexamine their frame, right, to see what's possible and what's not, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I want them, I don't know what's going to be possible, right? They're the engineers working in their field. But I think a lot back to uh, William Gibson, who, you know, everyone uh, who would interview him after the cyberpunk revolution would ask him a lot of technical questions. Like, do you think like, you know, 802411, you know, uh, is going to win? Or like, do you think like, I'm making up numbers, but like, do you think this protocol is going to win or this protocol is going to win? You know, are you behind Bluetooth or do you think we're always going to be wired in? You know, and he's like, I don't care. Like, I didn't read, I didn't become a technical (laughs) expert to write Neuromancer. I kind of dreamed a lot of stuff and looked at human behavioral, you know, and came up with this, this stuff that is not bounded by technical stuff because he's like, you know, the experts told me that we didn't have the bandwidth to do anything I was talking about in those books. So from their perspective, it couldn't be done. We didn't have the, the, the processing power, you know? And so yeah. at some point like that bounds imagination, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and our job is to kind of take a step out and say like, if you don't have processing power limitations and you don't have bandwidth limitations, what would you do, right? Because that's the target that's 15, 20, 30 years out, right? And you've got to, you've got to, in, you've got to kind of get them thinking about those things, not where we are, but like where are we headed? Where's this going to end up? 
right? And that's science fiction. That's futurism. That's, you know, and, and, and more importantly, it's not a line. You know, that's the other thing is it's really easy to forecast a line. It's really, you know, like those, you know, in 1890, whatever, someone says, you know, oh, if, if, uh, if population growth continues at this rate and we have to have this many horses to move people around, there's going to be three feet of horse poop uh, lining the floor, you know, the streets of New York deep um, by 1950, right? And if you just draw a straight line, they're not wrong, right? Like, okay, there's about five inches of horse poop on the on the street now all the time that has to be scraped up. And if New York is going to be like five times as large, then you can just kind of make that, you know, linear extrapolation. Yeah. But the truth is um, what we're trying to do is be like, you know, um, what would a non-horse oriented society look like, right? Um, what What is, you know, like, just think about that. It's, I'm not asking you to invent the car. I'm asking you to think about what if horse poop isn't the problem at all, right? Yeah. Um, and you want to you want to get them thinking laterally. You want to get them thinking 45 degrees off. You want to think get them thinking in circles and jiggly jagglies, right? Um, <laughs> and to really just be uh, get in there with a sense of play and imagination, um, because that just gets beaten out of you. Um, by high school and middle school, right? Um, mm-hmm. I need to turn them back into like little elementary school kids because elementary school kids always, always, always outperform CEOs and middle managers when doing a marshmallow and spaghetti um, tower structure because they have no preconceptions about what it should look like or how it should be built. They try lots of different things laterally and see what succeeds and then they pick that. Right. And so it's kind of like it's it's encouraging people to think widely again and to think like kindergartners again. That's that's the goal. So I this is going to seem like it's coming out of nowhere, but I I want to play this game. So it's uh, circulated a little bit online. Maybe you've seen it already. And I think it kind of connects this whole idea of how do we think differently about the question or how do we sort of change um, the frame of it. But there's a meme that's been traveling around a little bit, um, at least at the time of this recording, about which which are there more of in the world? Are there more wheels or are there more doors? And it's the sort of question where my immediate reaction was like, wheels, obviously, vehicles everywhere, you know, all sorts of vehicles, uh, especially ones that we don't even remember have wheels, like airplanes have wheels and their landing gear and so forth. And then you start to sort of sit back and you think about it some, and you're like, well, hang on, doors though. And like, what, like, my pet door is a door. It's a literal freaking door inside of a door. And like my car has doors. And so it's got, it, it's got in fact more doors than it has wheels. If we consider the fact that it's a hatchback, you know, and um, then we go like, wait, but, but wheels though, like there are things inside of the engine that are driving the belt. And like, is that a wheel? Like, how does that work? And so I guess, it, what you're describing to me here sounds a little bit like posing something that seems like a simple question and exploding the assumptions of the premise. Yeah. Yeah. The nod is very Absolutely. useful for radio. <laughs> no, I mean, uh, the other thing is the, uh, you know, again, like also drawing people back down to first principles. Uh, there's a really good essayist. I think it's uh, wait, but why who talks about why Elon Musk is so successful because he goes back down to the, you know, base assumptions, right? You know, so it's not like, you know, can I build a rocket that's 10% more fuel efficient? It's like, what's the theoretical max fuel efficiency of a rocket? Like, what's the map, you know, like, what's, yeah. what does physics say is the minimum cost required in terms of fuel to get something up? And mm-hmm. you work from there, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and it just sort of, again, it's changing the framework, right? It's not like, 
you know, um, when I talk to creatives who are trying to figure out how to make a living at art or something like that, it's like, you know, change the framework, right? Like it's, what's the minimum you you require to live comfortably and start from there. Not how, you know, um, sometimes it's also like, uh, I talk to people and say, okay, um, you've already got two days out of your seven. So you're two sevenths already a writer because you've got weekends, right? So, you know, what can you do to keep slicing that salami, you know, and, you know, up, you know, instead of worrying about how do I become an artist all in one shot? It's like, how do I get a Friday free? Is there a job I can do or a lateral move I can make or a change in negotiations where I lose one day of my nine to five and I get three days and I can kind of go, okay, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, I pretend to be a writer. Monday through Thursday, I, I pretend to be a nine to fiver, right? You know, it's just changing your personal framework in terms mm-hmm. of like, how do I flip my assumptions about this? And then you just slowly grow that other thing. Is it hard to find a job where you can kind of, you know, um, slowly decrease the amount of hours you work? Yeah, it is. But it's a thing you can do in addition to trying to force your art to become more successful that positions you to create a mutually workable situation, you know, where if you can find a job where eventually you negotiate to a halftime position with healthcare, where you work three days a week, you suddenly are in this position where three days a week, uh, you're a nine to five or four days a week, you're an artist. That means the bulk of your working life, you're an artist. Mm -hmm. And even if that's as far as you got, that's still kind of a cool spot to be in, right? And it yeah. takes a lot of the pressure off of you um, in terms of like what you're pushing yourself to do. Or there are just lots of different ways to look at it, to frame it, to build it, you know? Um, and it's all stories. It's all trying to re-examine the story of what you tell yourself about what you're up to. Um, mm-hmm. And I'm just always interested in kind of poking at those and pulling them apart to figure out how you do it, right? Oh, for sure. Yeah. And I, I mean, the, even the... Going back to that idea of examining the base assumptions, um, I um, I am a high school English teacher, so I am I am part of the apparatus mm-hmm. that may or may not be driving my students out of an imaginative uh, capability. Um, <laughs> so <laughs> I guess the jury's out on that on, on an individual basis and so on. I, I'm sorry, didn't um, one of your students just get win a story contest and get on LeVar Burton's podcast? LeVar Burton's, yeah. Well, one so, of them. So I don't think you are. I don't think you are taking them out of the creative space. Maybe not. Yeah. Um, okay. I mean, or or, or they I, I resist think, my 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 battery. Of high school. <laughs> sure. Yeah. No, no. I is, I'm not. Is, I'm, I'm not teasing well, you, Toby, yeah. about about you're 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 quite. Well, no, right I'm sensitive on. about this. My yeah. wife was a high school Spanish teacher, so I'm not knocking yeah. the teaching profession. No, no, no. I mean, it's um, the other reality yeah. of it is it needs to be observed that I teach at a very abnormal high school. Um, it is a mm. public boarding school for gifted students, so there are a lot of a lot of those base assumptions Expert. and structures work differently. Um, but the the reason I'm bringing it up is, um, a few times I've had students write me very nice little thank you notes, um, which, which always matter a lot more than the boxes of chocolates, although they are sadly less edible. Um, I guess from a certain frame of reference, they're less edible. So what I'm hearing is you want them to write you a thank you note on edible chocolate paper. Yeah. Why not? Um, but some of them have been like, you were the person who, who made me a writer, and and um, I, and I say that in the lofty voice. I am not to mock the sentiment. It is very kind of them to say that, but for me, that that sentiment lands a little bit cold because it works on the base assumption that um, that the verb itself didn't matter. 
like the the whether you are you use the in your in your anecdote before like I'm gonna be I'm gonna pretend to be a nine to fiver for four days of the week and I'm gonna pretend to be a writer for three days of the week, and the pretending can mean whatever an individual wants it to mean, but to my, my way of thinking, the, the act of writing makes you a writer. Now, whether what you really mean is you you acknowledged me as a writer mm-hmm. in a way other people did not, or um, now I am published and I view that as, as the sort of like Rubicon I had to cross to become a real writer or whatnot. Um, but there are so many ways in which we think about ourselves and we think about our world that are accidentally toxified by base assumptions that there is some sort of structure that gives meaning to the things that we do that we can't actually interrogate and break down and realize that no, that that structure exists because we're participating in it. That structure exists because we, we are giving it the ability to exert the influence on it that on us that it does. So now apparently I'm, I'm just going to like light a torch and storm a building and that's that seems like a good episode man you know that seems like a good healthy place to land yeah you know i'm gonna throw out there that that when you you know toby's talking about the structure this frame Mm -hmm. uh we get very comfortable we get very very comfortable in our lives and the more comfortable we are the harder it is to try to break out and do something different and i think that is part of what you guys are talking about a little bit here uh, you know, especially when uh, I, I know that Tobias has has small humans, and Tracy, you have small humans. Um, if you if you took away their electronics and their Wi-Fi and their ability to connect with their friends at any moment that they wanted to, and you isolated them for say a month, uh, would they eat you? You know what I mean? It's like if you took them out of their comfort zone where they can mm-hmm. constantly have – or like would it, would we be looking at Lord of the Flies here? <laughs> you know, because uh, I, I, I look at my own kid, life. But yes, yeah. I mean I, I, look, I totally see where you're headed here. Yeah. I look at my own life and there's things that I, I would like to do that are outside of the comfort zone, outside of my framework. And I don't do them because of the hump of having to learn something. So I didn't do the RV thing. Because I don't understand cars. I don't do engines. Like, that's not my thing. Uh, I totally could have learned it, right? And, and, and probably would be in a better position today because, you know, I, I would be able to maybe change my own oil and not have to pay somebody to do it. You know, those kinds of things. Uh, so I, I guess I'm just looking at it from a standpoint of, of – not only have we built these frames and not only are we in these boxes that I know that Toby didn't want to mention, uh, but breaking out of them is really, really hard. Breaking out of them is really, really hard. And it gets harder for each generation, I guess is the point. So I, I think about my childhood. As soon as I had a bike, I was gone. (laughs) And I, I would leave especially in the summer, I would leave and my mom and my grandmother wouldn't see me until sunset. Mm-hmm. And they were fine with that. Can either of you imagine, you know, having zero communication with your small humans the entire day, not knowing where they are, not knowing what they're doing and being fine with that? Um, my kids have a, tre- I live in a small walkable town. So my kids do have a tremendous amount of sort of, 
you know, uh, ability say to positive walk. feral opportunities. Yeah, yeah. And, and, <laughs> but because they have phones, I tend to know where they are. Um, mm-hmm. and, but take the phones away. The same, but they know what well, even if they we did that, they would do the same thing I used to do, which is, uh, you know, my mom would always like, you know, know where I was headed. And, and I had to call when I got there type situations quite often. So yeah. And see, I never did that. Do, yeah. Yeah. We kind of do a lot of that, you know, which is just, so I would say it's, it's, it wouldn't be that much that different if they lost their phones, they would just have to use their friends' phones to call us once they got to their location to let us know that they got there safely. Um, I also think the reality of, of, again, thinking about the frames that we exist within that those frames have shifted and changed in ways that we don't often sit back and think carefully about. Um, like we talk about them in very general terms, um, like on the level of of being out all night until the the street lamps turn on, sort of thing. Versus um, some people who who have like tracking apps activated for their for their kids' locations and things. Um, and I see validity to either approach. But I think the reality is some of the frame that contains that more hovering modern approach is just fundamentally different. Um, one of the things I had to do this week for work was log on to a uh, proprietary program that my uh, employer has given us access to, whose entire job is to train me in something called the ALICE protocol. And if you're not familiar with what that is, ALICE is an acronym for... Um, the steps that should be taken in an active shooter situation. And as I teach in a school, I have to know all these steps. Um, The training itself was about two and a half hours online in a sort of self-paced thing. And it included telling me how to tourniquet one of my students' legs, um, how I need to build what's called a go bucket to have in my classroom. Fun fact, a go bucket is a five-gallon bucket um, of the sort that you would get from Home Depot or Lowe's or whatnot into which you put a roll of toilet paper, a black garbage bag, uh, something that can be used as a tourniquet, um, basic bandages, a couple of fun distracting devices uh, like, you know, poppets or a crossword puzzle book, um, some snack bars and and bottles of water um, and, a, and a, a transistor radio. And you have these things and you keep them in your room because if you are locked down for a sufficient period of time as, le- as law enforcement clears the building room to room, it could be hours before you and your students are left out. So the go bucket gives them a place where they can literally poop and pee um, armed with the toilet paper. You can give them food and snacks. You can give them things to entertain themselves and hopefully not be thinking about what may or may not be happening outside. Um, They also recommend putting rocks in the go bucket so you have something to throw at the intruder. Um, Included in it was how do I use a stapler from my desk to break a window and clear the glass from it. Fun fact, you hit the corner because the center is meant to to bow and take mass Um, so that my students can drop out of a window if necessary. I'm going through this in the gruesome detail that I am to make the point that there are threats which are have always existed but have become more pronounced and more visible in recent years in the lives and minds of parents and their children that I think we have come to, to have as part of the taken-for-granted air of our lives. 
um, that we just sort of breathe it in and say, look, there was a shooting. Or we sort of breathe it in and say, look, there was there was a kid who was snatched and um, now we have an Amber Alert. Um, that we breathe it in and, and we say that there was someone who was drunk driving and swerved off the road and hit these kids who were walking home from whatever. Um, many of these things are not unique to our present moment, but I think our awareness of them is sharper our fear of them is sharper. And I think the frequency of some of them is certainly enhanced. And so if there had been a way for mom and grandma to know for sure that you were safe, I don't think they would have said no to it. Yeah, probably. So this has become the most serious conversation episode we've had in a long time. My you have goodness. a great old one in traffic in your, in your book, though. I'll yank it back, though, right? Yeah, because, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, talking about these frames and how to reinterpret them was one of the interesting things about the pandemic, right, for me, because I have been a freelancer. I work from home for the last 15 or 16 years. Um, even now, I'm, I'm uh, uh, teaching some classes at the local university, but it's I live on the edge of campus, so it's just a quick walk-in, and I've always valued this. You talked about this on Twitter and talked about it on my blogs about just what a huge change in your personal daily life it is to get out of the commute, right? I did it for two years, three years, um, to, to yank that away. And yes, I'm lucky and privileged that I was able to freelance. Um, but even now I'm, I'm working, you know, what you could consider a day job, you know, being teaching creative writing as a professor at the local university. Um, but I walk there, I walk to my office and if I leave something in my house, I, I kind of get annoyed and spend, you know, 15 minutes walking back home and getting it and walking back to my office. Oh no, I got some extra exercise in sunlight. It's the end of the world. Um, and I prioritized that, you know, I paid the extra money and, 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 you know, went through the hoops to make sure that we, we lived within walking distance of a lot of the work we were doing. Um, and, uh, all the years I've talked about it, a lot of people have given me pushback. I, I get a lot of people who say like, look, this is just the way it is, or this is the only way I can get a job. And I get that. Like there's a lot of structural stuff that prevents lots of other people from doing it, but I've met a lot of people who could live a lot closer and walk to work who, don't, right? Because they prioritize other things, right? Bigger house, you know, um, uh, uh, other things, right? Um, And what was really interesting was to see so many of the people who have always, always, always just said things like, oh, that's just the way it is. I can't change this. I don't want to change this. Who after spending three months at home suddenly went, oh my gosh, and sold their house and moved closer to work. Or (laughs) who switched and got a job that's work from home forever. You know, just uh, there were a lot of conversations I had over many years that were really fruitless, but it took someone just having to spend three months in a different framework that they suddenly went like, I get two hours more a day for my hobbies or for my family or to pursue cooking or just to read. Right. Um, And I think it's no surprise that like, you know, black lives matter, um, sprung up during this period. Um, It wasn't just that we saw some more things on camera that were horrifying. It's that people had the time to look around and do some more digging and suddenly realize how common it was. People had some more time to look at these protests and and how the protesters were treated um, because they weren't at work, right? It's, you know, for uh, sometimes as a sort of, you know, more progressive individual, I can get really frustrated and be like, don't people see what's happening? And it's like, you know, I talk then talk to a lot of people who are just grinding away at their day jobs, who are just sort of like, I work all day, you know, I come home, I do dinner, I do chores, 
we watch a fun TV show that like lets us get away from that. And then we clean up and we go to sleep and we start over the next day. And they just don't have time to mm -hmm. become more aware, right? And during this period, they had time to become more aware. And some people that I'd, you know, known in, you know, in different contexts to see them suddenly going, you know, being outraged and becoming almost like activists and posting about stuff and, and sending money and becoming engaged was really fascinating to me because again, it just showed, you know, how much these, the, you know, how much uh, different we could be as a society if we were, you know, taking a second look at our basic frames. Mm -hmm. um, and so that was, you know, as horrible as the pandemic was, I was really encouraged by that and yeah. really hopeful that if we gave people more time, if we organized less around these long commutes, um, future generations would just have more time to become more aware, to pursue hobbies. You know, there was a wealth of small business creation um, because people were at home and trying to think. And some of it comes out of desperation. Yes, and that was horrible. Um, but like we're coming out on the other side of this with like this this creative explosion of, of new endeavors. Um, and I that's really encouraging to me. Uh, yes, there's a lot of horrible stuff we can talk about, and, and that's really easy um, in terms of like where our minds go to, right? It's, mm -hmm. it's easy to stare at the train wrecks. Um, but I, I just have been really encouraged by that because I think there's this untapped potential yeah. um, waiting to be unleashed. I, I think I think it's amazing how work in America has been redefined. And coming through the pandemic, what a lot of companies realized is remote workers works. Having people work from home works. Uh, they're still productive. They're still doing their jobs. The company is still going. And then what kills me is the companies that go, wow, this really worked. Remote working was amazing. Uh, come back to the office tomorrow or else. <laughs> you know, it's, it's like, because they can't get out of the frame. Yeah. Uh, one, they're in the frame. Two, um, these structures are fascinating to me. Um, there's this uh, gentleman by the name of uh, David Graeber. I think his name is G-R-A-E-B-E-R. And uh, uh, he wrote this really amazing book called Debt, The First Thousand Years, which talks about frameworks in terms of thinking about money and macroeconomics, which is mind blowing. I'm still only about halfway through it. I keep, you know, I keep, my mind keeps being so blown. I need to go read some other books just to make sure that he's not just a great writer who's like, you know, BSing me. So sometimes there'll be something in there that I'm like, okay, I've got to go learn about this now from another source so that, you know, I'm careful that I'm not being manipulated here. But he also has another book called, um, and unfortunately he's passed. Um, he also has another book called Bullshit Jobs, mm. um, which is one of my favorite books, period. Um, because it goes into this uh, thing of like, why are people ran like before the pandemic, right? Like, why are people be called in to do these jobs that don't seem like it doesn't need to be done like this? Um, and his theory is that a lot of it is um, bosses want to be important. And the more important you show yourself as a boss is the larger the group of you know people who work under you in your offices, right? Um, and he has all of this, it's, I, don't, I don't have time to go into it, but he has all of these ideas about why that might be true. Um, and I thought it was a very compelling book. And the more I see of this people being forced to go back to work, I'm like, it's not to actually increase production. It's not to improve the quality of the business. It's simply to satisfy the ego of the bosses. 
because they're there to micromanage and see you working for them in that place. Because if you think about it, and I think this also points to some of the problems we have with democracy here in the U.S., right? Most people's experience with um, a political structure in their life is that they go to a nine to five workplace, which is, is inherently monarchist and authoritarian, right? You spend most yep. of your time in your job being told what to do in a clear hierarchy with extremely controlled instructions that come from one primary flag figure who was put there by someone who's not you, that you do not have a vote in. Um, there, you know, most job places are inherently authoritarian. Um, and most, I think a lot of Americans, if not most, inherently confuse capitalism and democracy, right? Um, and capitalism is uh, built in America's inherently authoritarian. Um, so I think like the amount of time you spend being democratic, and I'm not talking like a Democrat in a party, but I mean democratic as in voting for, you know, and, and voting for things, you know, the, the small d. Um, the amount of time you spend active in a democratic society is a small sliver of your day, an extremely small sliver of your day. So what do we, you know, how do we model um, successful democracy and democratic institutions on a daily basis in a structural manner when most of people's learning takes place from authoritarianism and their work. I, I don't know how to square that, um, but it's a problem, I think. Yeah. And you talked about, you know, the, 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 all the small businesses and things that, that kind of popped up during the pandemic. I had an idea for something I wanted to do. I'm not going to do it now because someone else beat me to it. But my idea was to do a $20 million plus Kickstarter <laughs> for books. <laughs> and unfortunately, someone beat me to the punch on that. So, you know, I kind of feel like, yeah. Mm-hmm. like not be an also ran on that one. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't That's know a- that all you had to do was set – 10, 20 million as the goal, and that would happen. <laughs> one million. The goal. One million was the goal. Yeah. Yeah. The goal was one million. That, is, that right there is a whole other episode. Yeah. 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 I've seen some chatter from some writers that are like, oh my gosh, it's everything Kickstarter from now on. I'm like, a lot of people don't know what all Brandon has been up to for 25 years. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's more that it's Brandon up to something, not that it's Kickstarter. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. so the, we've gone really long. Do we still want to try to do picks of the week? We can do them really quickly if you want, Tracy. Yeah. And we'll end on a positive note. Lightning round. Yeah. Picks of the week. Tracy, you want to go first this time? Sure. Uh, I don't often recommend things that I haven't actually watched yet, laid eyes on, played, whatever, um, because, you know, I like to vet stuff. But I'm recommending this because I'm just so freaking excited for it and everybody's just going to have to deal. So um, there is a Batman tabletop um board game called Everybody Lies that drops in May of 2022, so a couple months from now. I have a pre-order out on it and I'm deeply excited for it on several levels. Um, One, the mechanics of the game are really interesting. If you have ever played um, games like Arkham Horror or um, you know, Battlestar Galactica um, or Eldritch Horror or things like that. It borrows some of the mechanics that you get uh, from a cooperative game where there's sort of a, like a larger mystery or challenge afoot in the environment with secret motivations and not exactly a traitor mechanic, but not exactly everybody's on the same side mechanic either. And in this game, you are in Gotham City. 
You have a choice of playing one of four uh, different it, investigator it, characters. It, yep. Is it raining? Uh, probably. Probably. Okay. I'm going to assume probably. Yeah, I'm, I'm uh, assuming it's raining as well. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Um, and you are investigating a, a crime spree that relates to the larger Gotham verse. And it's going to involve, you know, various characters that we know. You know, it's got Poison Ivy and Penguin and Riddler and all sorts of whatnot. Um, the characters that you can play are Harvey Bullock, uh, Vicky Vale, uh, Catwoman, and. Vicky Vale? Yes, indeed. Um, I am blanking on the fourth, which I'm sorry about. Um, but in any case, the whole idea behind it is that you are trying to piece together elements of this mystery. Um, but of course, because the game is called Everybody Lies, not everybody who's part of your investigative team is fully trustworthy. And so it's got some really nice flavor text elements and some really well-developed components and whatnot. I'm super excited about it just on principle, but I'm extra excited about it because the biggest Batman fan I know is my 10-year-old daughter. <laughs> um, and she is also an extremely adept and precocious uh, game player and loves social deduction, mystery sorts of things. So she will be 100% ready for this, even though it's rated, you know, for ages 14 and up, she is already playing things that are rated 16 and up. So I, I have a feeling she'll be able to tackle this. Um, is, so if you're is, interested, is, yeah. is the fourth character Montoya? No, it's not Montoya. I was, I was sad okay. about that. The fourth character is some other investigative journalism dude who I don't remember. Gotcha. Um, okay. And anyway, so the, the game is Everybody Lies, and you can just Google that and see if you want to pre-order along with me. Very, very cool. Toby, how about you? You got a pick of the week? Pick of the week. Um, this flag means death on HBO. Just, just <laughs> uh, Taiki Watiti uh, plays Blackbeard, um, and uh, I forget the name of the other actor who's really great, um, plays uh, um, uh, Steve Bonnet. Uh, okay. I'm, I, I have this, like, I have obviously being a biracial dude who's born in the Caribbean, have a mixed uh, relationship with the age of piracy and how much it's glorified. Mm-hmm. Um, but I also, as a kid, you know, was just like any other kid obsessed with pirates because I lived on a boat. Like, I mean, it's so on brand. How could I not be? And read all about the age of piracy. And I love the pirates because if you read actual history, I love actual pirate history instead of. Re, uh, pirate novels because no, not pirates pirate of the Caribbean. History. Yeah. Yeah. They're like, they vote. They were like the only democratic institutions inside of like, you know, the horrible colonial era um, and relatively, uh, you know, more racially open. There were freed slaves and, and people of color serving on pirate ships and they split the booty amongst themselves. And I drew just like, you know, it's the closest thing to a, uh, you know, modern multiracial democratic society in the uh, 1600s uh, on the sea in the, you know, in that, in, in the colonial eras that you find. So I just always had this sort of general affinity and love of the actual pirates, not Disney pirates. Um, and so there is always this incredible disappointment. I get really excited to watch something like Pirates of the Caribbean, knowing that it's going to be super pale and glorify, you know, uh, all, you know, unintentionally often glorify, you know, the worst elements of colonialism. And so uh, this flag uh, means death is, is hilarious because of course you've got Taiki Watiti's sort of, you know, uh, uh, New Zealand kind of perspective sneaking in there. Um, he's on the edge of the colonial empire. He's got this different kind of uh, thing going. Um, and also it, 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 it uh, even though it's humor and funny, uh, it's closer to on brand with real history and what I love about pirates than a lot of real pirate movies have been. So 
it's been a very enjoyable uh, experience for me. And I've always wondered how exactly they would deal with a steed bonnet. Um, he always just kind of gets conveniently left. But I mean, the gentleman pirate, like it's the only, it's it's the thing, it's the sort of thing that can only happen in real life, right? Mm-hmm. You know, um, it's the, it, it's a, a flamboyant, well-dressed, upper-class aristocratic, you know, and, I, and by well-dressed, you know, frilly and, oh, yeah. and yeah. just fantastic in that fabulous 17th century uh, way that when men were men in war stockings, right? <laughs> they just love. Um, and uh, it has been hilarious. Like I, I was, I was trepidatious. Uh, there was some trepidation going into it. Um, and I've just been so charmed by it. And uh, it, it, it has been fun. So that, that was my pick of the week. That's I watched awesome. all six episodes this week uh, because this was spring break. Um, and I quite love it. I shouldn't, but the, I love it. The actor who I also can't remember his name, I believe was in the original movie, What We Do in the Shadows. I believe he was a werewolf yes, I think so. in that. And he also is in a, you remember the X-Files reboot with uh, uh, the actors who played Mulder and Scully? Yeah, he, he, he played the character that was kind of on a, he was dressed as Kolchak. He he played the character that was the uh, were were man. Yeah, and he was he, he was, was actually a wolf that got bit by a werewolf and becomes a man yes. once when the full moon comes out. Yes, and so he's he's like you know there I was doing my doggy stuff, enjoying myself, sniffing some butts, and I got bit by this rabid werewolf. Yeah. Next thing I know, I wake up and I have a I have this overwhelming desire to put on slacks, a polo, and go work. And 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 when Mulder first encounters him, he's he's wearing Kolchak's suit and hat from Kolchak the Night Stalker <laughs> as an homage to that. And there's this hilarious there's this hilarious scene where he's working at the cell phone store and Mulder comes in and he's telling the story of Scully coming in and basically taking off her clothes and dragging him in the back to have sex with him. And and Mulder's like, that didn't happen. That didn't happen. <laughs> <laughs> but I, yeah, I remember that. That 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 that's a. I like that guy. I'm I'm of, I'm gonna go out dark. Of the entire reboot. That was the only episode that I found funny. redeeming. It yeah, it, 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 it was it, it was a funny episode. It's it really not, was. It's not X Files' fault. It just turns out that in the '90s, people who were interested in conspiracy theories were edgy and out of the mainstream, which made them kind of interesting. And now, now people who believe in the lizard people are storming the Capitol. It's not yeah. funny. It's not yeah. funny yeah. or you're interesting anymore because it's just like, oh, no, you're one of those people. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be real quick with my pick. My pick is darker. Uh, in keeping with some of the earlier tone of stuff, uh, I went and saw the Batman. And I, I, was, I was very cautious about seeing this because of – the actor, uh, Robert, uh, uh, Pattinson, Pattinson. Thank you. And while I didn't have Affleck levels of anxiety, I, I mean, I, I had, I could not believe when they cast Affleck. I really couldn't. It's like that showed me the disconnect between everyone else in the world and Warner brothers. Pattinson to me, I I was worried, but I, I will tell you that I, enjoyed that movie quite a bit. I joked about Gotham being in rain because in the entire movie, it's never not raining in Gotham. Uh, I liked that. I liked the elements of it. I liked that it was, it was, it, 
it took things very seriously, but it didn't go over the top like Snyderverse. And, you know, to the point where, where Batman's beating someone up, you know, you have to zoom in on bones being broken and blood splattering everywhere. Like they didn't do that, but I liked the detective elements of it. Uh, it, it just, it felt really, really good. The only thing I didn't like was the Batmobile. And the reason I didn't like the Batmobile is because it made no sense from a story perspective. Throughout the course of the almost three hour long movie, Batman is always riding a motorcycle. Always. Every single shot. Motorcycle, motorcycle, motorcycle. And then when the story needs him to suddenly have a Batmobile, he suddenly has a Batmobile. And then he goes back to riding a motorcycle. It made zero sense to have a Batmobile other than, you know, we need to have a Batmobile. We have to have a car at some point. But it's still and, your pick of the week, right? It's still my pick of the week. It's still a good okay. movie. I enjoyed the movie. <laughs> I just thought the inclusion of the Batmobile from a story perspective made no sense. Gotcha. So there you Bruce go. Swain was just trying to save the environment. He's <laughs> just very conscious, you know, before he leaves, he's like, is this, do we really need to be running the whole jet turbine five <laughs> miles per gallon Batmobile or can I hop on the bat? Yeah. Cycle. The bat cycle. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I blanked. I'm more, I, I, uh, bat yeah. noun portmanteau. <laughs> yeah. keep right. spent. So there we go. So, so Toby, uh, tell people where they can find you online, websites, uh, latest book, where they can find that, all that good stuff. Social media. So we, we didn't cover a lot of it, but I'm actually a science fiction author, uh, and uh, you can find my writings. I'm not making fun of you, the host. I'm just saying that we had so much fun talking that we yep. never got around to talking about any of that stuff. And that's just fine with me. This was hella fun. Um, you can find me online at www.tobiasbuckel.com uh, or on Twitter at Tobias Buckel, although I'm, I'm not on Twitter as much these days actively. I've been very busy for the last year and a half actually two years. I, I, I've weathered the pandemic by just being crazy busy. Um, and uh, you can find me there. You can find all of my books, my short stories. I've, I've got 120 or so short stories in various magazines and anthologies you can find and 12 or so uh, novels that you can check out all at TobiasBuckel.com. And if you just want to hear more of my thoughts, like what we were talking about here, I occasionally uh, share some of those same uh I wouldn't call them pearls of wisdom, but random scattershot lateral thinking uh, frame recontextualizing happens. Buckshot of wisdom. (laughs) Buckshot of wisdom. (laughs) A buckshot of wisdom there. Um, That's all it is. Science fiction writers just shoot the buckshot at the barn door and then we circle all the ones that hit uh, the right uh, target and go like, there, look. We, 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 we predicted the future. Aren't we smart and clever? Um, and so I do all that on Twitter. <laughs> all right. Well, thanks so much for being with us, Toby. Thanks for having me. It was a pleasure. Welcome to March. Spring will be sprunging. Wait, springing? Eh, I don't know. But anyway, it's happening soon. And that means it's time for a new bumper. First on the agenda, Beyond the Trope. Giles and Michelle over at Beyond the Trope should be scratching their ears and wondering who's been talking about them. It's me! I've been talking about them here and in other places like Capricorn 42. Why? Because they have a pretty nifty little podcast. They talk to authors and artists just like we do and release episodes on Tuesdays, just like we do. 
So if you subscribe to both our podcasts, it's like getting a double feature every week. In other news, I mentioned before Capricorn 42. That's because Tracy and I had a lot of fun there, especially spending time with several of our patrons. Becoming a patron doesn't just mean you get to hang out with us at conventions, although you might. It means also getting access to things like monthly hangouts, a patrons-only episode of the podcast every month, and even a private Facebook group where we talk about extra nerdy things. It's as close to the green room for the show as you can get without, you know, actually being in the green room. Check out patreon.com slash functionalnerds for more information about becoming a backer. What's next? Well, April, I guess, comes after March. I'll probably have to record another bumper. But that's easily days away or more. Who knows? <laughs> Time. Time is so stupid. Mr. Carpiers. You got it right. How about that? Yeah. You can call me Cannoli Joe. Oh, for God's sake. Patrick Louise. <laughs> <laughs> okay. That's probably a good enough signal. <laughs>